All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. If you're new to the Bible, we're glad that you're with us. This is a safe place to learn how to read and understand the scriptures. And if you don't have a Bible or don't have an ESV, which is the version we use, there are Bibles in the lobby available for you. You can also just punch in John 15 ESV on your mobile device and follow along that way. This morning, as you can tell, we are taking a break from our regularly scheduled program in the book of Galatians to dip our toes into an ocean that is more wide, more vast, and more deep than we can possibly imagine. This morning, I want to lead us in a, we'll say, an extended meditation on the love of Jesus Christ for us. A love which began before time itself, a love which will stretch on uninterrupted into eternity. I want us to to walk out of here today and be able to sing with full hearts the familiar children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Now that might seem simple and obvious, but, but to know the love of Christ is no easy feat. In fact, it is an impossible feat. We're after an impossible task this morning. Impossible, that is, apart from the strength of the Spirit of God. The Apostle Paul prayed in uh, Ephesians chapter 3 that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength, here's what we're after, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to, here it is, know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It is impossible to know the unknowable love of Jesus Christ apart from the powerful working of the Spirit in our hearts. So I want to read Jesus' own description of his love for us and then pray for the Spirit to help us in that way that we might understand and cherish the love that our Savior has for us. So follow along as I read just one verse. John chapter 15, verse 9. And then I will pray. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Read that again. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you you abide in my love. How about we just read that together, all of us, once. Here we go. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. The very words of God. 
Would you join me in a brief prayer for understanding and spiritual strength? Lord, we ask you now to do something only you can do. To give us a sense of the love of your Son for us. To let us taste of this ancient love. That our hearts might be satisfied and glad. That we might be filled to overflowing so that we might persevere, so that we might love others and love you. I pray that you would give us, by the power of your Spirit, the strength to grasp something of this magnificent love, a love which we will study and enjoy and grow in for endless days. Give us a taste this morning. We desperately need it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are few things more terrifying for parents of young children than the moment you realize you don't know where your child is. It's a common experience, if you don't have young children or haven't had young children, it's a common experience because, one, parents are not omniscient, surprisingly, and they are not omnipresent, but it's also a common experience because children are extremely prone to wander. Those two things, a parent's lack of omniscience and omnipresence and children's interest in wandering off, work together to leave parents often asking themselves, wait a minute, Where's my kid? When my son Eli was two or three years old, my, my wife and I were with him downtown just a few blocks away in Plaza Park at night during Christmas time. At one point, we began looking around, and this, this has happened so many times, by the way. I couldn't even think of a specific story, and I had to ask Kristen to remind me of a specific story because this is so common. We began looking around, and we noticed that we didn't spot him. We couldn't see him anywhere. So we began looking a little bit harder. Eventually, we were frantically yelling and running around the park. Eli had wandered behind a big, gigantic, fake Christmas tree the city puts up every year. It's probably 20 feet in diameter. It's gigantic. And he was just right where we couldn't see him, no, much, uh, no matter how much we moved around. And fortunately, a gentleman on the other side of the road spotted Eli and spotted us running around like maniacs, and he got our attention to let us know he was just on the other side of the tree. It was quite a relief, especially when you're in a park surrounded by a traffic circle where people don't drive with a great awareness of pedestrians. It was quite a relief. Things like that happen all the time when you have young kids, no matter what you do. Parenting young children is one part teaching and warning them, and about 99 parts vigilance, watching out for them. Besides lack of sleep, this need for vigilance is a big part of the reason young parents are so tired. For even the sweetest, most compliant kids are easily distracted. And let's be honest. The same is true for adults, isn't it? Same is true for adults. 
we are easily distracted and wander away from safety. As Christians, we confess this all the time. We confess it every time we sing the hymn, Come Now Found. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The Lord is quite aware of this tendency in us. And John 15, 9 is one verse of many that the Lord gives to us to draw us back into safety and protect us from wandering. Abide in my love is an invitation as much as an instruction. Stay here. This is a safe place for you in a world full of dangers. This is a refreshing place for you in a desert wilderness. This is food for you in the midst of a famine. This is shelter for you in a raging storm. Stay here in my love. That's what he was saying to his disciples here. That's what he's saying to you and I today. Hear his voice. Stay here, he says to you, especially if you've wandered away. Especially if this morning you would say, I have a little, very little or no sense of his love, or my heart feels cold and indifferent towards him. Look, if you're not a Christian, today could be the first, the first time you sense a love for him when the fire of your affections for him is lit for the first time. And if you are a Christian, even a Christian who feels cold and indifferent, Here's the good news. If you have any interest in experiencing his love, that is proof that you are not out of his love. If you have any faith in him, any trust in him, even the faintest love for him, that is undeniable proof that you are not out of his love, not at all. But he tells us to remain because over time we drift away. We drift away. Scholar, author D.A. Carson, he helpfully observed about this passage. The injunction, the command, to remain in Jesus' love presupposes that however much God's love for us is gracious and undeserved, and it is very gracious, very undeserved, however much it's gracious and undeserved, continued enjoyment of that love turns, at least in part, on our response to it. This is what we have in mind here. Continued enjoyment of the love of Jesus Christ. That anybody who knows you, or anybody who comes to this church on a Sunday, might leave noticing, saying, not just that these people love Christ, though that would be great, but that these people enjoy the love of Christ. That is actually more important. And look, we can't take our foot off the gas pedal of pursuing a greater experience of his love. If we don't keep pressing into it, we will lose it. There's no neutral on this one. We're either growing in our enjoyment of it or we're slipping away. And of course, I believe he wants to get our hearts back this morning. There are three phrases in this verse you may have noticed as we read. Three phrases, and to make it easy on all of us, those three phrases are the three points of my outline. I'm going to take you through each one. Three phrases, three points. Phrase number one. 
as the Father has loved me. As the Father has loved me. This is an analogy of Jesus Christ's love for us. All good theology begins with God. All good theology begins with God, not with us. If we look at ourselves and our circumstances and our world and our lives and then try to understand Christ's love by working backwards, we will be very confused. For the world we live in on the surface does not appear to be ruled by a God of love, does it? I mean, how could a God of love rule over a world so filled with hate and pain and injustice and disappointment? We can't go that way. We can't work backward from our experiences or from the world to try to understand God. So instead of starting us down here in time and space, Christ takes us outside of time and space. As the Father has loved me. If you and I are to grasp something of Christ's love for us, Jesus says, first, you need to grasp something about my Father's love for me. And again, this is no easy feat, my goodness. Whenever I read this phrase, it feels as if I'm standing near the the edge of the theological pool, talking to somebody, and Jesus walks by and just shoves me in the deep end. Thinking about the eternal love of God the Father for God the Son is absolutely mind-bending. But Jesus says, it's the most accurate analogy of my love for you. If we're to feel his love, we must first feel the Father's love for the Son. So, what is God's love for the Son like? Well, it's eternal. Has no beginning and no end. He's always been loving his Son, the Father has, and he always will be loving his Son. There's no other love like that. His love for the Son is pure. The Father loves His Son with a perfect love. Every instruction He gives His Son is the best instruction. He's not domineering or harsh or cruel. All the commands are for His Son's good and for their collective glory. The Son always responds to the Father in perfect obedience. Their love for one another is unstained by sin or rebellion or strife. There's no need for forgiveness between them. No break in the relationship, no no tension or awkwardness or disagreements. It's a pure love. And it's a committed love. It's a committed love. The once popular but now despised song from the 80s, Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. Couldn't be more true of the Father's love for the Son. And listen, you're right. I'm rickrolling you in the middle of a sermon. (laughs) And I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish this. The Father will never give up the Son. He will never let him down. He will never run around or desert him. He will never make him cry, never say goodbye, never tell a lie or hurt him. Take that, Rick Astley. (laughs) The biblical word is covenantal. 
It's a covenantal love. Their love is bound by an eternal covenant, a commitment that can never be broken or severed. It's like marriage vows times a thousand or more, times infinity. That's how the Father loves the Son. Eternal love, pure love, committed, covenantal love. Let's be clear. There is no greater love than the love God the Father has for God the Son. And what we learn about God as we contemplate this is that God loves to love. He loves to love. He's been doing it forever as Father, Son, and Spirit. You, you want me to, let me dust off a doctrine for you, okay? This is one of the reasons why it is so important that we know God as a trinity. As complex as the ideas of the trinity are, it's not an abstract doctrine or belief when you talk about relationships. Only a God who has always enjoyed relationships would be interested in creating and redeeming people to enjoy a relationship with him. In fact, the problem with sin is that it ruined the relationship. He's only interested in a relationship because he has always experienced the joy of a loving relationship. Michael Reeves, in his excellent book, Delighting in the Trinity, describes it this way. Here's what he writes. He writes, Non-Trinitarian, single-person gods, having spent eternity alone, are inevitably self-centered beings. And so it becomes hard to see why they would ever cause anything else to exist. Wouldn't the existence of a universe be an irritating distraction for the God whose greatest pleasure is looking in the mirror? Creating looks like a deeply unnatural thing for such a God to do, and if such gods do create, they always seem to do so out of an essential neediness or desire to use what they create merely for their own self-gratification. He writes, everything changes when it comes to the Father, Son, and Spirit. Here is a God who is not essentially lonely, but who has been loving for all eternity as the Father has loved the Son in the Spirit. Loving others is not a strange or novel thing for this God at all. It's at the root of who he is. The Father's love for the Son in the Spirit is the heartbeat of all existence. The world exists because of this love. You and I exist because of this love. In fact, we exist to be brought into it. An eternal love. A pure love, unstained by sin. A committed love. That is precisely, precisely the love that Jesus Christ has for you. And for me, surprisingly. <laughs> In fact, that love, the love of the Father and the Son, is the most appropriate analogy. As the Father has loved me, phrase number two, 
in the same way the Father has loved me, phrase 2.2, so have I loved you. So have I loved you. Jesus speaks these words to his disciples in the middle of a farewell speech. Middle of a farewell speech. In a farewell speech, you say all the most important things. The cross, at this point, is getting very, very close. And Jesus knows that in mere hours, he'll be sweating drops of blood in the garden right before being arrested by Judas's mob. He knows this. He knows that's what's coming. He knows their time together is coming to a close. His words are carefully selected. These are the essentials. The words he wants to be ringing in their minds when he's gone. I'd argue the words he wants to be ringing in their minds when he's on the cross. These are the words he wants them to pass on to their disciples, to us. So have I loved you. He leaves his disciples with his love. Just like the Father's love for the Son, look, he has loved you since before time began. His love for you is eternal. No beginning and no end. His love for you is pure in the sense that he genuinely cares about your well-being. He wants you to be happy and at peace and at rest in your souls. He wants good for you. Jonathan Edwards described his love this way. There is no love, he wrote, no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. He's one that delights in mercy. He's ready to pity those that are in suffering and sorrowful circumstances. He is one that delights in the happiness of his creatures. The love and grace that Christ has manifested does as much exceed all that which is in this world as the sun is brighter than a candle. And even that analogy breaks down. His love for you is pure. He wants good for you. Jesus' love for you is committed. Nothing can stop him from loving you. Not his enemies. Not even your own sin. On the TV show Scrubs, which at one point I was a fan of, there's a scene that stuck with me. It's actually in a church with a pastor. The pastor ends the service by saying, I love you, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. I love you, and there's nothing you can do to stop me. Oh, that couldn't be more true of Jesus' heart for us. His love is committed. His love, in fact, is covenantal. He made a commitment to the Father to love us no matter the cost. And Jesus says, so have I loved you to his disciples right before he's about to pay the price for loving them. Commenting on this verse again, D.A. Carson writes, Jesus depicts his love for his own as a completed thing. Notice that. So have I loved you. Not in the past. It's a completed thing. His love is a completed thing. So imminently, Carson writes, so imminently does the cross stand 
in view. As you look up from those words, you see the cross. So have I loved you. He tells us about his love right before he's about to show us. In what would be the greatest, clearest display of God's love for sinners that the world has ever known and will ever know. Just like the Father loves the Son, so does the Son love us. But with one huge difference, one massive difference. The Son is worthy of the Father's love. The Son is worthy of the Father's love. We aren't worthy in the slightest. Our whole lives prove it. As Matthew Henry wrote, as the Father loved him who was most worthy, Jesus loved them who were most unworthy. The Father loved him who was worthy. The Son loved those who were unworthy. Jesus loved his disciples by befriending them, entrusting them with ministry and Entrusting him to represent him, feeding them, healing their family members, teaching them truth, sharing meals with them, weeping with them, no doubt, laughing with them as well, praying for them. Those were all tokens of his love, but those were only small appetizers. The feast of his love comes to us through the cross of Christ. It's why we eat and drink the Lord's Supper. The cross is a feast of Christ's love for us. The cross is where he proved his love for us by dying for us in our place for our sins, being treated by his Father as though he had been as unworthy of his love as we were. Jesus was despised by men, forsaken by God, and he hung there experiencing what we deserve for spurning God's love as the proof of God's love for us. Whenever we think about the cross, or read about the cross, or sing about the cross, which thank Joe and the worship team for leading us in songs about the cross today, every time we should hear these words ringing in our minds, so have I loved you. When you consider the cross, are you convinced afresh of his love for you? Is the cross enough to satisfy your curiosity about whether or not he loves you? As the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, which we do sing here, so poignantly leads us to sing and reflect on. On the bloody tree behold him. This cuts me to the heart every time. Sinner, will this not suffice? Is the cross enough to satisfy your curiosity? Or is there something else, something else, maybe even subtly, something else your heart subtly demands from him to prove his love for you. What is it? It's such an important diagnostic question we have to ask ourselves. What do I really want? 
I have to be honest and clear about that. What do I really want? What do you really want from him? A new job? A spouse? A new spouse? A house? Peace and quiet? That's mine. One on a list of things. Name those things. Name them. Draw them to mind. Write them down in your journal. Tell them to a trusted friend. Name them. And with God's help, get rid of them. Get rid of them. Get them out of the way so that you can feel the fierce fire of his love warming your heart from Calvary. For if we make demands of Christ to prove his love apart from the cross, we will drift from the enjoyment of his love. And again, as far as I know, I'm the chief drifter in this way. I'm the chief drifter, but God-given repentance is the course correction. My friends, even when we drift, even when we drift, he is patient. He's not tapping his foot. As the, the Puritan author Thomas Goodwin said, he, he said like this, this is so insightful, we are apt to think that he, being so holy, is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them. No, says he, I'm meek. Gentleness is my nature and temper. He knows how frail our affections are. He is ready to reassure us and win us back. He's doing it today through this verse, through the power of his spirit. John 15, 9 is an expression of his gentleness towards sinners. He doesn't say, once you leave, you're out. He's inviting us back. So how do we understand that phrase, so have I loved you? We have to see him bloodied and battered on the cross and hear those words ringing in our minds, pressing deeper into our hearts. So have I loved you. The first two phrases of John 15:9 are, we'll say, descriptive. The third phrase is the instruction. Phrase number three, point number three. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. Or to say it another way, live in the love of Jesus. Live in the love of of Jesus. The word abide, no surprise here, means to stay or remain or settle. Set up camp here, okay? Set up camp here. We live in a desert wilderness. That's the language of the Bible. A spiritual desert wilderness. That's where Christians live. We're pilgrims, exiles, sojourners, wanderers. That's how the Bible describes our lives. The world, it turns out, is a desolate place. It's not offering us the love of Jesus. In fact, it's offering us everything else. But as we make our way in this world, strapped to our back is a tent. 
that we can pitch anywhere in this world, the tent of Jesus Christ's love for us. You can live in this love even while you're wandering around. Now, from the outside, this tent isn't much to look at. And most of the people who pass by are going to be like, what's so great about that tent? But when you get inside, oh, it's a massive, opulent mansion of unending refreshment and delight. That's what is inside the love of Jesus for us. So stay there. Stay in that tent. Don't leave. Don't wander too far away. Don't go looking for what's in that tent somewhere else. You will not find it. You'll be tricked by the counterfeits who will leave you deeply broken and alone, which is our destiny apart from Jesus. Stay where it's safe in the love of Christ. How do we do this? Well, to spill outside of our verse a little bit. In the next verse, John 15, verse 10, Jesus says that we abide in his love by obeying him. Not very romantic words. <laughs> Honey, if you really love me, obey me. That does not sound like love. We abide through obedience, he says. This sounds, this offends modern ears, I think. <laughs> sounds like toxic divinity. Uh, toxic divinity. If you love me, obey me. Our modern sentiments of love are all over the place, but I think they're well expressed by the musician Sting when he's saying, if you love somebody, if you love someone, if you love somebody, if you love someone, that that's how the song goes, <laughs> set them free. Love to us, untethered from Scripture, love to us means letting somebody be who they want to be and supporting them no matter what they choose. I mean, it's the exact opposite. This is, our sensibility is the exact opposite. It's the exact op opposite of telling them to listen to you and follow your directions. <laughs> that just seems so counterintuitive and decidedly unloving. But this is where we have to go back to the analogy that Jesus is using here. If we want to understand this call to abide by obedience, we've got to draw on the analogy of the Father's love for the Son. The Father makes commands of the Son, gives him instructions, which the Son gladly obeys. Why does the Son do that? Because he knows the Father's love for him. He knows the Father's heart, his intentions, his aims and goals. He shares all of them. He has the same intention, same aim, same goals. He knows that they are all good and right and perfect and lead towards the best ends. That's why the Son obeys the Father. A good human father reflects this, right? I mean, why does any dad or mom lay down rules like don't run out in the street? In my case, don't talk back to your mom. Don't hurt your siblings or your friends or your classmates. Speak with kindness. Those instructions are for the child's good and for the good of others, motivated by the father's love for the child and a desire for peace and relational harmony. That's why parents give instructions like that to their kids. 
And of course, Jesus' commands fit that and are even better. Jesus' commands are for our good, motivated by his love, intended to promote peace and harmony between God and man and between man and man. But not only that, not only are they good for everybody, not only would it be better for everybody if we obeyed Jesus, when we obey him, it draws us into a deeper experience of his love. It doesn't make him love us any more or any less, but it does affect our experience of his love. The more we obey, the more we understand and experience. The more we trust that he will provide for us, oh, when that, when that takes up residence in your heart, you know he's going to provide for you. In that moment, you're enjoying his love, and he tells you to trust that he will provide for you. The more you serve his people, which is an instruction he gives us to serve one another. When we serve, we enjoy more of his love. The more we pick up our cross and follow him, which means pain and humiliation on his behalf. When we pick up our cross and follow him, in those moments we enjoy his love. There's a direct correlation between our obedience and our experience of Christ's love. Now, don't misunderstand. There are other factors in play. Unexpected, unexplained suffering can be like dark clouds that block the light of his love for us. There are things besides, we'll say, disobedience that make it hard to know that he loves you. Granted. But the most common factor, and the one that we have the most influence over, is our level of obedience. Willing disobedience, it's like, it's, like a, it's like a storm cloud generator that pumps clouds up into the sky, obscuring the light of his love for us. The light is still there. The rays of his love are still there. We just can't see them because we've pumped all these clouds up into the sky. Our awareness of his love dims when we have unconfessed, undealt with sin. And so just take that instruction, abide in his love. It's an instruction, another command. I mean, how often do we disobey that? I do it all the time. I don't stay. I'm a, I have an idle factory in my heart cranking out lesser loves that I want to give my heart to. And then when I do over and over again, I wonder why I feel so dry and spiritually thirsty. So what are those areas? Those places where you know you're giving in. Places you know you're reaching for the forbidden fruit. Those places you sense that you are neglecting primary responsibilities but have not yet changed course. I got a list <laughs> for me personally. What about you? What are the areas where you know I've wandered away from him? I've wandered away from him here. Oh, in your heart today, begin by admitting it. It's okay. He's not surprised. He's not bitter. He's not going to turn you away when you turn back to him. Oh, and neither will we. If you need to confess something to a brother or sister here in the church, we will not turn you away or be surprised or disgusted. Not at all. We will embrace you and point you back to him. For Jesus has loved you forever. Knows everything about you and loves you anyway. He's loved you forever. He still does. He always 
will. My friends, if we do this kind of repentance, this kind of work, and position ourselves to a greater enjoyment of Christ's love, it will have a noticeable and powerful effect on our lives, in our homes, in our church, in our friendships, at the workplace, in our city. Look, if we live in His love, we will be deeply satisfied people. We will be able, if we live in His love, to resist the urge to use other people for our own gratification and instead to serve them in love. For if we know that we're loved by Jesus Christ, we don't need anybody else's love or affirmation or appreciation. Look, of course, it is good to be loved and appreciated by others, and I hope that we are known for expressing love and appreciation for one another. We should. But that's different than needing it, craving it. Your need for other people's pats on the back will diminish as you enjoy the love of the most important, significant, glorious being in existence. Everybody wants to be loved by someone important. Well, Jesus is the most important being in existence, and he loves you. There's nothing better. If we live in the love of Jesus, we will be protected from the pain and discouragement and heartache of living in this heartbreaking world. It's Jonathan Edwards again. There is such love, he writes. There's such love and such grace in the heart of God that if you understood the length and height and depth of it, you would never be discouraged. If we understood the love in his heart, we would never be discouraged. If we stay in his love, we will never be defeated by whatever life throws at us. We'll be able to say, look, my life is a mess. Don't need to pretend like it's not. My life is a mess, but I have the love of Jesus. I've lost so much, and many of you have. I've lost so much, but I have the love of Jesus. I have so much, and it's all going so well. And I'm, I'm wondering when it's all going to come crashing down. I won't worry about that. I have the love of Jesus. If we abide in his love, live in his love, we can face another day no matter what it has in store. Look, if we live in the love of Jesus, we will be inspired to love other people. Not only do we have a model of love in Jesus, we have the motivation. He loves us, unworthy us. And so a heart gripped by that love can't help it. They can't help but love others on his behalf to please him and bring him glory and fame. If we live in his love, we will be ready and willing and equipped to love others. And my friends, if we live in his love, we will make it to the end. 
we'll make it to the end. Pastor Eric, uh, who's preaching a few weeks ago, made a passing comment in a sermon that has stuck with me. He said, joy isn't a luxury. It feels like it, right? Like, joyful is just for the very few happy, for the people who have enough money and a great job, or Christians that are really, really Christians and really, really spiritual. The the, the joy is a luxury for the few. Mm -mm. Joy isn't a luxury. I actually, in my notes, added joy isn't a luxury. It's a necessity. The same is true for us of living in Christ's love. And in fact, living in Christ's love is directly tied to experiencing joy. Read the rest of John chapter 15. So living in his love is not a luxury. It's not a luxury. It's a necessity. Without it, we will wither. Those who never know his love will die. There's no third option. If we are to make it as individual Christians, it will be because we remain in the love of Jesus Christ by faith. And if we make it as a Christ-loving, gospel-preaching church in Orange, it will be because we live in the love of Jesus Christ. A community that's experiencing a growing amazement. This is who we desire to be, friends. A community experiencing a growing amazement at the undeserved and unrestrained love of Jesus Christ for us, supremely displayed on the cross. That's who we desire to be. A church filled with individuals who are staying, remaining in the love of their great Savior. May that be true of us today. May that be true of us every day until our loving Savior returns. Let me pray that it would be. Lord, abiding in your love is not something we can do under our own power. So now, send your Spirit that those of us who have wandered away might be led back. Those of us who are thirsty might receive a drink, a satisfying drink of the water of his love. That those who are hungry might be satisfied. Lord, please, draw us back into your love that we might enjoy you and that our enjoyment of you might animate our entire lives, might spill over onto others. Lord, we want to live in your love. So give us a greater sight of it today. By the power of your Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.